Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters, and today we'll examine a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with the impact of the release of the video of police inaction while children were being slaughtered in Uvalde, Texas, and investigate the cover-ups from state and local officials with Zach Despart, a politics reporter for the Texas Tribune. He investigates power, who wields it, how and to what ends, through the lens of Texas government. He previously covered Harris County for the Houston Chronicle, where he reported on corruption, elections, disaster preparedness and the region's recovery from Hurricane Harvey. And we will discuss his latest article at the Texas Tribune. Leaked video shows Texas law enforcement's long wait to confront Uvalde school shooter. Then we'll look into the October 31st, 2020 tape recording of Stephen Bannon just before the election discussing strategy which was leaked to Mother Jones in which Bannon predicted Trump's premature victory declaration, lawsuits and uncertainty that would force Congress to decide the elections and the post-election unrest and chaos would be desirable in what he described as a firestorm. Joining us is Dan Friedman a reporter in Mother Jones's DC Bureau covering foreign influence and national security for Mother Jones. We will play some of the tape and discuss Dan's latest article at Mother Jones, leaked audio. Before Election Day, Bannon said Trump planned to falsely claim victory. Then finally, we'll get an assessment of the crisis in Sri Lanka from Shanta Derivajan, who was born in Sri Lanka and is working with what is left of the Sri Lankan government and its creditors to resolve the country's default on more than $50 billion in debts owed to multilateral agencies, foreign governments and commercial lenders. A professor of the practice of development at Georgetown University's Edmund A. Walsh School of Foreign Service, he was previously the Senior Director for Development Economics and a former Acting Chief Economist of the World Bank Group. And before we go to our first guest, this program is completely independent without corporate sponsors and advertising relying entirely on your support. So we ask you to take a moment and visit backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or go to our non-profit media foundation at publictruthmedia.org where you can keep us online and on the air on a growing number of stations for as little as $5 a month. Help sustain us into the future so that we can continue to provide breaking news analysis from the most knowledgeable guests at home and abroad. And we've made it easier for you to donate simply by credit card at backgroundbriefing.org slash donate, where your tax-deductible contributions make this program possible. And joining us now is Zach Despart, who is a politics reporter for the Texas Tribune. He investigates power, who wields it, how and to what ends and through the lens of the Texas government. He's previously covered Harris County for the Houston Chronicle, where he reported on corruption, elections, disaster preparedness, and the region's recovery from Hurricane Harvey. And his latest article at the Texas Tribune is Leaked Video Shows Texas Law Enforcement's Long Wait to Confront Uvalde School Shooter. Welcome to Background Briefing, Zach Despot. Hey, Ian. Well, thanks for joining us, and it seems that... um, the, there's a sort of deflection going on amongst the Texas authorities where they're blaming the press for the leak of this video from the Austin American Statesman and the ABC TV affiliate in Austin, rather than the police for the manifestly obvious 
in action for an hour and 22 minutes as uh, 19 school children and two teachers were slaughtered by this gunman. Yeah, there is certainly criticism of, of both of those things. The concern from a lot of the public officials wasn't that the video has been released. They just felt like it should have been available to the uh, victims' families before it became public. Um, obviously, this shooting happened seven weeks ago, and the authorities have had all of that time uh, to release the video. Um, it, it is a horrible thing to watch. Um, I'm, I'm glad that uh, it is available. It's an important record of what happened. Uh, it does depict what we have uh, learned for weeks. Um, my team at the Texas Tribune had actually watched this video close to a month ago. Um, and yeah, it shows that uh, contrary to how the police and the governor had initially presented what had happened, that police uh, shortly after rushing into the school and, and trying to engage the gunmen, they retreated. Um, they were shot at, they retreated, and they did not again try to engage the gunmen for more than an hour. Uh, it's an excruciatingly long time, uh, even though we've written about this before, it's another thing to actually watch it and to have the public watch it. Uh, and certainly it is a difficult thing for families um, to see uh, all of the opportunities, all of the time that police had to engage the shooter uh, and did not do so for some 77 minutes. And the video that was released by the Austin American Statesman and the ABC affiliate, they apparently took out the sound of the children screaming. When you saw the video some time back, did you hear the children screaming? There is, uh, from our review, uh, audible screaming in the, the very beginning. Um, it, it's kind of hard to hear because it's like a hallway surveillance video, but you, you can hear it. Um, you, you don't really hear it like throughout that entire hour plus period. It's only like right, right when there's a lot of gunfire in the beginning and right after the shooter has entered the classroom. Uh, yes, the, the newspaper in Austin had made the decision to, to remove that. And certainly that's, that's one of the hardest parts of the video. So I've seen some of the video of the of the Tuesday council meeting, and Mayor Don McLaughlin of Uvalde, he's he's been the most vocal critic, I guess, of the press. But he's also he was pretty prominent in the initial press conference that took place right after the, the massacre, led by the governor, at which they praised the police, and then the governor. Uh, Abbott was confronted by the guy that's running against him, Beto O'Rourke, for governor. And I recall that it was Don McLaughlin that was screaming it at Beto O'Rourke to shut up. And it felt like the argument that he was making, McLaughlin at the time, is the same one that they continue to make. It's kind of the heart, you know, thoughts and prayers arguments, that it's inappropriate to bring politics into a situation we all, what we need to do is grieve as opposed to you know, figure out what happened. Is that still been the dynamic, do you think, here? I mean, uh, Mayor McLaughlin has been uh, an interesting um, official throughout this, this whole ordeal. Uh, he he was critical, yes, in that press conference of, of Better O'Rourke for uh, sort of interrupting the governor and asking questions of him uh, at that time. That was the day after the shooting. Um, the mayor has also been quite critical of state officials. Uh, he feels that the state police and the governor have leveled a lot of criticism at the local police for how they responded, but are not sufficiently taking responsibility for, for their own actions, specifically that 
in many, many state troopers responded, um, federal agents responded, uh, and they have not received the same level of criticism. Uh, the head of the state police had leveled a lot of criticism at uh, the local police chief, for example, the incident commander who, as you see in the video, um, did not take charge of the scene, uh, did not act decisively. Um, but of course, there were many other police officers from many other agencies who also did not come forward, be more aggressive, uh, and act more quickly to stop the shooter. So at the uh, Tuesday council meeting, City Councilman Ernest W. Chip King III complained that uh, releasing the footage was chicken bleep. And he again criticized the media. And, and somebody in the audience, the citizens of, the, of Uvalde, said, what about the cops? Are they chicken bleep as well? And he didn't really get a response. Uh, my reading of it, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, Zach, is that I was surprised to see that so many of the officials seem to be Anglos in this predominantly Latino town. Is that an accurate observation? Uh, the public officials, so far as we can tell, are disproportionately Anglo in, in Uvalde County. I mean, Uvalde County is roughly 80% Latino. Um, I wouldn't go so far as to say, like, I'm in for, like saying that there's some sort of race issue. Um, that is that is true. Um, but yeah, I, I guess I'm not sure what to say beyond that. So there's already been a parent. The Department of Justice is looking into the police response. They say that they're not looking at for criminal purposes, but to find out what happened. There's also been another study done by the Advanced Law Enforcement Rapid Response Training Center located in Texas State University in San Marcos. And then there's another investigation underway by the Texas House of Representatives, right? Yeah. So that report is expected on Sunday, is that right? Yes. Uh, the House Committee plan to present this report uh, to you, all the residents, and to the public uh, at a meeting on Sunday. Uh, it will be the most comprehensive report to date. I was talking with um, some people quite familiar with the investigation, and that report's going to be more than 100 pages long. The uh, alert active shooter trainer uh, report that came out a couple weeks ago, might have been last week, sorry, it's been a very long seven weeks here. Um, it was about 25 pages. It wasn't quite as comprehensive. It focused a lot on the local police, and Mayor McLaughlin, again, was felt like that was unfair and didn't appropriately level criticism at the other police agencies that responded. But I'm very much looking forward to this House report, which, so far as we can tell, is going to be much more comprehensive. It's going to talk about all law enforcement response and might have some more history about the shooter and the events leading up to what happened. And again, I'm speaking with Zach Despart, who's a politics reporter for the Texas Tribune. He investigates power, who wields it and how and to what ends through the lens of the Texas government. He previously covered Harris County for the Houston Chronicle, where he reported on corruption, elections, disaster preparedness, and the region's recovery from Hurricane Harvey. And his latest article at the Texas Tribune is leaked video shows Texas law enforcement's long wait to confront Uvalde school shooter. So in terms of culpability, the uh, Uvalde school police chief, Pete Arandona, he is already resigned and you mentioned the incident commander on the video doesn't appear to be taking charge at this point who do you think is largely responsible because it's it's extraordinary to see 
the police, you know, you, as you mentioned earlier in the video, there is a response from, I guess, the local school police. Uh, they only had sidearms, and they got shot at, and they retreated. And then later you see these other law enforcement people arrive with assault rifles and ballistic shields, and they do mm -hmm. nothing for like an hour or plus. So, mm -hmm. and by the way, it's pretty amazing that you saw the video, what, weeks ago, and you were not reporting on it. My understanding is from talking to some of the people in Uvalde, some of the residents were still angry and their children were murdered after all, and many of them were even arrested at the time of the incident by the police who were doing nothing inside but holding back the parents outside. So there's obviously a lot of bitterness there. What I was hearing from the local people was that they're angry at the local district attorney. So who is culpable here, do you think, Zach? Yeah, those are some good questions. Uh, we did write a story uh, after we saw the video describing exactly what was in it um, about a month ago. Uh, and for point of clarification, Peter Idano, the school police chief, he resigned from the city council, his other job. He's still the police chief. He's just been placed on, on leave. Whether he will return or not is, uh, remains to be seen. Uh, the broader question about whose fault is it, I mean, of course, that's the most important question uh, that people are wondering right now. From the police tactics experts we have spoken with, and from this lengthy testimony that the head of the state police gave to the Senate a few weeks ago, uh, it really is, is comprehensive. It, ultimately, it's, it's all the police officers who responded um, because the active shooter training says you confront shooters as soon as possible. You don't wait for backup. You don't wait for extra weapons. You don't wait for ballistic shields. Uh, the head of the state police singled out the local police chief for specific criticism because he was supposed to be the incident commander. But according to the video and the body cam footage, they did not act like that. Uh, but he also and some of the other police people have leveled criticism at, you know, other police who, who knowing that and seeing that the local police chief was not acting appropriately, was not taking charge, that they themselves did not take charge. So it's a comprehensive failure of local police, of state police, of federal agents who all responded to the scene and collectively are responsible for not engaging sooner. Well, oddly enough, there was a Supreme Court decision, I can't remember, about 2007, I think it was, that made it clear that, that the police have no duty to protect unless they had promised to do so in writing. So that's an extraordinary little, <laughs> little fact there. So it's probably unlikely at the end of the day that any of these police officials will, will be held to account, right? I mean, there doesn't seem to be any legal basis for holding anybody to account in terms of a prosecution? Yeah, I mean, the legal basis question is, is a great question for a lawyer much smarter than me. Um, but in terms of accountability, I think it depends what that looks like. Uh, will Pete Arredondo ever return and, and work as the police chief? Will he go out to keep his job? I don't know. In terms of um, what accountability other police agencies face in terms of reassigning or disciplining members, I don't know. I mean, there certainly is a lot of, of public support, or I should say public pressure on law enforcement agencies to be accountable and to reassign people or discipline people for their inexcusable inaction during the shooting. But I think it's just too early to tell. And what about the local district attorney who the citizens of Uvalde apparently are blaming for a cover-up in effect? They're most upset with her because she has uh, directed other government agencies not to release uh, documents, video footage related to 
the shooting. And that's why residents are concerned or about a cover-up or something like that. Uh, I'll note that the the House committee that, that was going to release the video before it was leaked this week, they were going to do that over the objection of the local district attorney because they felt it was so important for the public to be able to see this video. So some of those concerns may be boot, but I will say that you know we've put in, as many other journalists have, dozens of records requests for records related to the shooting, and the DA holding them up is a major reason why we haven't gotten them. Does anybody know what her motives are? I wouldn't speculate on her motives. Uh, I think, I mean, I had emailed with her the other day and she had said she wants to wait until other investigations are complete before authorizing the release of records. Uh, that's just, we have no idea when that might be. I mean, those investigations could take months, they could take years. So I don't know. And in terms of the governor himself, going back to the press conference the day after, at which they all sort of praised the police as opposed to condemning them, is he going to pay a political price, do you think? That's a good question. Um, of course, the governor is up for re-election uh, in a few months. I'm not sure how much this shooting will play into that. I mean, there have been many, many disasters that have befallen Texas in the past four years that voters are thinking about. Um, so I'm not sure, but I think it's possible. I and mean, not just this shooting specifically, but the issue of guns and their regulation more broadly. So that do you think there's been a, a sea change in the attitudes amongst amongst the public about guns based upon the fact that this 18 year old was able to who clearly had some problems and certainly had troubled um, home life that he was able to purchase a an assault rifle I think pretty much on his 18th birthday was he not and, and this is similar to what happened in in Buffalo New York as well. Yeah, the, the shooter in this case, according to police, was able to purchase rifles um, shortly after he turned 18 and, and did so. Um, there there may be some political support where there was not before, for example, to raise the age at which to buy those kinds of rifles from 18 to 21. Some of the legislators in the committees have hinted at that. Um, that, of course, would, would apply to very few people. I'm not sure anyone would describe that as a, a broad or a comprehensive gun regulation. But in Texas, uh, gun politics for a very long time have been in favor of expanding access to guns rather than restricting it. So uh, I know it's kind of a weird framing for this, but uh, the fact that the legislature would consider any restriction would be a, a departure from the past. But apparently uh, the mental health services in the state of Texas are, are pretty underfunded compared to the rest of the country, and that $211 million was taken out of that already pretty thin fund for this Project Lone Star on the border that was Governor Abbott's idea. Apparently now they've sort of reconsidered that. But in terms of mental health screening, there are some indications that this shooter was quite sadistic in what he was doing inside that those classrooms. Is that reporting come your way, Zach? I mean, certainly mental health has been a, a focus of the legislative committees and their hearings so far. Um, I haven't seen any records specifically about this individual's mental health history, but certainly some of the senators, for example, in the committee, you know, suspect, you know what, maybe he did have something that was, um, that he was ill in some way, and, and maybe we could have had a better way of, of diagnosing that. I don't think any, any state in the country has a uh, adequate mental health funding or, or access, but uh, Texas certainly has had its, its struggles that are unique to it um, and has, has its issues with having a, a poor social safety net generally. So, yes, legislators are talking about expanding mental health care. Uh, these things are expensive, and uh, I'm not sure that any state has 
adequate comprehensive mental health access and funding. Texas has its unique struggles with a social safety net. And while legislators have talked a lot about doing what they can to expand that net and spending more money, I'm not sure it will be enough money to significantly make a difference in cases like these. Well, Zach Despard, I thank you very much for joining us here today. I really appreciate your time. Glad to be here, Ian. And again, I've been speaking with Zach Despart, who is a politics reporter for the Texas Tribune. He investigates power, who wields it, how and to what ends, through the lens of the Texas government. He previously covered Harris County for the Houston Chronicle, where he reported on corruption, elections, disaster preparedness, and the region's recovery from Hurricane Harvey. And his latest article of the Texas Tribune is leaked video shows Texas law enforcement's long wait to confront Uvalde school shooter. We're going to take a brief station break. We're back looking into a leaked tape recording of Stephen Bannon predicting with eerie accuracy everything that would happen after Trump declared he won an election he lost. Kids with guns, kids with guns, taken over, but it won't be long, they mesmerize, skeletons, kids with guns, kids with guns, easy does it. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Dan Friedman, a reporter in Mother Jones's D.C. Bureau, covering foreign influence and national security for Mother Jones. His latest article at Mother Jones is leaked audio before Election Day. Bannon said Trump planned to falsely claim victory. Welcome to Background Briefing, Dan Friedman. Thanks for having me. Well, thanks for joining us. And it's an extraordinary trove of information. I mean, the tape's uh, apparently almost an hour long, and we'll play a, a, you know, a couple of minutes of it in a minute, but the idea that Stephen Bannon on October the 31st of 2020, just before the election, was discussing a strategy in which Trump would prematurely make a victory declaration, that lawsuits and uncertainty would force Congress to decide the election, and that post-election unrest and chaos would be desirable in what Bannon described as a firestorm. So either Bannon was in on the strategy, or he's just an amazing clairvoyant. What do you think? Bannon pretty clearly indicated that he was, he was helping to form the strategy. He told these people, um, as we mentioned in the article, that he was in close contact with Rudy Giuliani, who was, of course, Trump's lawyer at the time and was preparing to oversee um, Trump's efforts to challenge an election loss in court. So Bannon intimated that he was collaborating with Giuliani on, on advocating for this strategy um, of Trump falsely announcing victory if he had lost, saying that um, you know he was being cheated if he was behind and allowing himself, I think, the creating the opportunity to claim that his defeat was due to election fraud and thus laying the groundwork for challenging it in court and, and creating, I think, political um, headwinds, getting his supporters to believe he had been cheated and, and thus having a chance to contest the election in the House of Representatives ultimately. 
So to, he was uh, using this. This was a plan to try to steal the election, and the first step was to claim that he had actually won. And in in the tape, of course, he says what Trump's going to do is just declare victory, right? He's going to declare victory, but that doesn't mean he's a winner. He's just going to say he's a winner. Trump's going to walk into the Oval, tweet out, I'm the winner, game over, suck on that. So if you don't mind, Dan, let's just play a, a little bit of the of the recording, and then we'll pick up the conversation afterwards. Great. And what Trump's going to do is just declare victory, right? He's going to declare victory. But that doesn't mean he's the winner. He's just going to say he's the winner. The Democrats, more of our people vote early that count. Theirs voted mail. And so they're going to have a natural disadvantage, and Trump's going to take advantage of that. That's our strategy. He's going to declare himself a winner. So when you wake up Wednesday morning, it's going to be a firestorm. You're going to have Antifa crazy, the media crazy, the courts are crazy, and Trump's going to be sitting there mocking, tweeting shit out, you lose. <laughs> I'm the winner. I'm the king. And he'll be all over. He'll be, he'll be going, where's Hunter? Is Hunter on a crack pipe? I mean, no, he'll be, because then it doesn't matter. Remember, here's the thing. After then, Trump never has to go to a voter again. He's going to fire Ray, the FBI director, and fire the seat. He's going to say, fuck you. How about that? Because he's never going to, he's, he's done his last election. Oh, he's going to be off the chain. He's going to be crazy. Also, also if, Trump is, if Trump is losing, by 10 or 11 o'clock at night, it's going to be even crazier. <laughs> you're crazy. you know, no, because he's going to sit right there and say they stole it. I'm, yeah. doing the, uh, Agree. I'm directing the attorney general mm-hmm. to shut down all ballot places in all 50 states. It's going to be no. <laughs> he's not going out easy. If, Trump, if Biden's winning, Trump is going to do some crazy And you've been listening to the recording obtained by Mother Jones of Stephen Bannon, on October the 31st of 2020, just before the elections, predicting so much of what has subsequently happened. So let's talk about the tape itself. It's apparently, or the, the recording, the, the circumstances in which it was recorded, uh, it's almost an hour long, and it was a pre-election meeting between Bannon and a half a dozen supporters of Guo Wengui, uh, otherwise known as Miles Kwok, who is this wealthy Chinese mogul with the big yacht that Bannon lived on in New York, wanted by the Chinese, uh, has background in Chinese intelligence, nobody quite knows which side he's on. There was a sort of sycophantic chorus of glee at all of his expressions, so they seem to be lapping it up. What was your impression? Yes. The the listeners, I think there was six or seven people who were there, and these people worked, um, some of them for uh, GTV News, which was a or a sort of video streaming Chinese language organization company that uh, Guo set up with Steve Bannon. Um, and the meeting was sort of intended to help GTV plan their election night coverage, which they were going to be doing from the roof of a building in D.C. Um, and indeed, uh, you know, Bannon laughed when he said, you know, Trump may not actually be the winner, but he's going to say that. And, and throughout um, the tape, um, in, in the part that we released and elsewhere, Bannon's predictions of um, Trump following this course of action, of Trump doing crazy things to retain power, of Trump not letting go of power easily were got the same kind of reception. They, they treated that as funny. So, I mean, it seems so obvious that Bannon, as, as we've already established with 
he was developing this strategy if he wasn't in on it, but he was certainly in on it, certainly later, before January the 6th, the day before, he had several phone conversations with Donald Trump. So, and we know that he's trying to play games with uh, testifying before, or not testifying before the January 6th committee. And I believe on Monday, he faces the court, does he not, where he'll have to decide whether or not he's going to uh, basically go to trial or plead guilty. It's unlikely he'll plead guilty, but so he'll probably go to trial, will he not? That's right. He's, he's charged with contempt of Congress. The fact that he's now said that he wants to, he's changed his mind and he wants to testify before um, the January 6th committee um, doesn't matter, the Justice Department said, and the judge agreed. That's because contempt of Congress is a crime. It's like if you rob a bank, you can't later say you want to give the money back. You committed a crime. And Bannon um, you know, was subpoenaed by the committee, and he said he wouldn't participate. Uh, cooperate at all due to what he said was executive privilege. He's not, was not in the government at the time. Trump was not the president when Bannon said that Trump was telling him that he was invoking executive privilege. And even if you're invoking executive privilege, you have, you can't just wholly refuse to cooperate. You have to show up like Pat Cipollone did um, before the committee, the former White House counsel a few days ago and say, I don't want to answer this question. I think executive privilege applies to this particular set of piece of information. Um, you, can't, you can't just say, I'm not going to talk to you at all, which is what Bannon did. So he's been charged. He has really no defense. Um, and so he is now, as you mentioned, I think, um, scrambling to uh, try to find a way out of, out of the problem that he's uh, created for himself. And just to, to, to fill in the picture here, it's worth noting that he scammed a bunch of Trump's followers with this uh, build a wall scam. He got a, at least a million dollars, which he pocketed out of it. They raised $24 million from Trump's gullible followers. Uh, he pocketed over a million. And the other guys involved in the scam are all facing jail. And Bannon would be in jail, but for the fact that Donald Trump pardoned him. That's right. And, and actually, in, in a report that I thought was pretty significant, it didn't get that much attention. The Washington Post noted uh, in a story a few days ago that uh, they cited uh, White House sources who said that Trump had told them, explicitly said when he was deciding to pardon Bannon, that a big consideration was the fact that Bannon had been a vocal supporter of Trump's lies about election fraud. Um, so that is... Um, whether or not that is illegal, that that is sort of definite, definitionally corrupt um, to pardon someone because they are they are helping you try to retain power, um, which reportedly is exactly what Trump said he did. So that's that's, I think, quite significant. I think we all thought that pardon was probably somewhat related to Bannon's um, support for the big lie. But that that's some evidence that that is indeed the case. And again, I'm speaking with Dan Friedman, who's a reporter in Mother Jones's D.C. Bureau covering foreign influence and national security for Mother Jones. His latest article in Mother Jones is leaked audio. Before Election Day, Bannon said Trump's planned to falsely claim victory. But Dan, the thing that I find most disturbing in, in what I've heard of the tape so far, and it's only a, a fraction since it's almost an hour long, is when Bannon says, here's the thing. After then, talking about the declaration of premature victory, here's the thing. After then, Trump never has to go 
to a voter again. He's going to fire Christopher Ray, the FBI director. He's going to say, F you, how about that? Because he's done his last election. Oh, he's going to be off the chain. He's going to be crazy. So is he talking about the idea that Trump will have a second term and therefore won't have to face voters again in an election? Or is he talking about a fascist coup, which is what happened? I mean, where, you know, once you take over, once the Fuhrer takes over, the voters uh, don't have any say. It's what happened in Germany. Once the Fuhrer got elected, he took over and uh, the rest is history. So what's what's he really saying there, do you think? Well, I think he, he, is, he is certainly saying that once Trump doesn't have a second term, he's, he's going to be completely unresponsive to any sort of democratic pressure, which I think Bannon is, is describing as, you know, any, any institutional pressure, any, any pressure to adhere to, um, as if Trump was following much pressure, to adhere to the norms of the presidency, um, to, to follow rules will be gone. Um, I don't know that he's saying um, beyond that, 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 you know, he's going to be implementing a fascist coup. But, you know, it's a little hard to tell exactly what he means by that. And, and I think it, it is correct to be quite alarmed by the idea that that Bannon is expressing there. Um, and, you know, ironically, Bannon um, has been, you know, this great proponent of the idea of, of a sort of a populist democracy, that, that Trump is this great populist and that he, Bannon, is helping to call, uh, release this, this great wave of, of democratic populism you know there's there's all this celebration of andrew jackson as this um influential figure um in in this you know sort of modern trumpy um democratic populist movement but uh bannon there is expressing contempt for democracy for you know the the fact that elect you know not only because he's talking about cheating the the election result but because he's saying that it's it's fun that trump will not have to uh respond to the pressures of having to face voters. So I think that that is quite illustrative of how Bannon thinks about things. Well, but the first thing he said was he's going to fire Christopher Ray, the FBI director. That sort of raises the alarm of, of a certain amount of lawlessness. And he also apparently was going to fire the head of the CIA, Gina Haspel, the defense secretary and the head of health and human services. And of course, Dr. Anthony Fauci. Yeah. And, and a lot of this was was um, reported on to an extent at the time, and as we mentioned, even before the election, you know, the the um, it had been reported, Axios reported that Trump planned to uh, declare victory, even if he was not in fact winning on election night. Um, and Trump's plans to fire a lot of these officials had been talked about a lot. Um, he did fire the um, Esper, the Secretary of Defense. The, the other people mentioned there, he, he did not actually fire, ultimately, because he wasn't winning. Um, but Bannon, in this tape, goes into extensive detail with a level of candor um, and um, foresight, describing that you know all of this you know was sort of a one plan. Um, for Trump to um, sow doubts about the legitimacy of the election and use that to try to stay in power and then um, get rid of everybody that he doesn't like or that isn't as slavishly loyal to him in government. Um, 
so I, I think that what that's what is really striking about this recording. Well, at about the same time that this recording was made, that uh, you have at Mother Jones, um, he was on the Showtime program, The Circus, where he said, it's going to be crazy lawsuits on naked ballots on every every different aspect of it. With this scale of votes, we'll go to into January, and that's when the firestorm starts. Well, my God, we all know what happened in January, particularly on January the 6th. So, again... What do you think he meant by the firestorm? He said that to you. It's also said that in the tape that you got too, didn't he, Dan? Yes, he did. He he did mention it, and and he he said the firestorm in, in that tape. He said the firestorm would start when Trump said, when Trump declared victory, even if he was losing, even if he was behind, that that would create a firestorm um, from the left. And and it is pretty clear that Bannon there means that. There, there is going to be the the left is going to be up in arms if Trump says he's winning, um, and then Trump's claim that he has been cheated is also going to be part of the same you know sort of general controversy. Um, and and Bannon doesn't explicitly say in this tape, but I, I think it's pretty fair to reach the conclusion that what he means is that. In all this controversy, fighting over votes, potentially he mentions the poten- repeatedly the potential for political violence. Um, in all of this, it, that is going to make it easier for Trump to challenge the election results. There's going to be such a furor that Trump is is somehow going to be able to take advantage that, of that as this agent of chaos and and get this election um, in front of the House of Representatives in a way that will allow him to retain power. So I think Bannon is saying that firestorm is part of Trump's plan to steal the election. And Trump knew, didn't he, that if you take it to the House, it's based on the, on the votes based on the House delegates. And Trump even said, you know, it's 26 to 22, 26 Republicans, 22 Democrats. So he certainly was aware of uh, that strategy. He was. He he. he later later explicitly said that you know that was something he was interested in pursuing and bannon also had had um i think bill mcginley who was a lawyer for the campaign on war room and they had explicitly talked about um well before the election they had talked about the possibility that the election would be decided in the house so so that was you know trump if if only the vice president had uh, had gone the way that trump wanted that would have been the consequence right yeah, that's that's what they were trying to do. Right. Um, so, well, there you have it. I mean, I'm I'm so grateful that you've uh, whoever leaked this to you. They've done the Lord's work here, and I thank you for joining us here, Dan Friedman. I I will pass that on. Thank you very much. <laughs> okay, and again, I've been speaking with Dan Friedman, who is a reporter in Mother Jones's D.C. bureau covering foreign influence and national security for Mother Jones. His latest article, Mother Jones, is leaked audio before Election Day. Bannon said Trump planned to falsely claim victory. We're going to take a brief station break. We're back with an assessment of the crisis in Sri Lanka with a former chief economist of the World Bank, who was born in Sri Lanka and is now working with what's left of the Sri Lankan government and its creditors to resolve the country's default on more than $50 billion in debts. You have to face up. You can run and 
Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Shanta Devarajan, who is Professor of the Practice of Development at Georgetown University's Edmund A. Walsh School of Foreign Service. He was previously the Senior Director for Development Economics and a former Acting Chief Economist of the World Bank Group. And he was born in Sri Lanka and served as a Chief Economist of the World Bank's Middle East and North Africa region and has been a Principal Economist and Research Manager for Public Economics in the Development Research Group and the Chief Economist of the Human Development Network, the South Asia region and Africa region. Welcome to Background Briefing, Shanta Deravajan. Thank you very much. So, Shanta, what do you make of what's happening to the country of your birth? Uh, It's basically... In default, it's in chaos. The prime minister's residence and has been sacked, and the country's basically run out of money. It ran out of fuel. Now it's run out of money. I don't know whether this is a harbinger for things to come because there are external problems that are, that are exacerbating internal problems in a number of countries caused by the Russian uh, war against Ukraine. But just to focus on Sri Lanka... What happened? Why is this country in this situation? Well, Sri Lanka is experiencing the worst economic crisis in its history, in, in its over 70-year history. Um, and the important thing is the reason for this crisis is completely due to misguided policies followed by the Rajapaksa administration. In November 2019, just soon after they were elected, the Rajapaksa uh, government cut taxes so much so that the fiscal deficit ballooned to 11% of GDP. And the credit rating agencies downgraded Sri Lanka to uh, near default status. Now, usually when that happens, most governments would then seek a debt restructuring and a program with the IMF. Uh, in order to restore some macroeconomic stability. But the administration refused to do that, despite advice from various people uh, that they refused to go to the IMF and they refused to restructure their debt. So, But they still had to meet these debt service payments because Sri Lanka had borrowed quite a bit. So they paid the debt service out of reserves. Well, not surprisingly, they ran out of reserves. So two years later, the country basically was out of foreign exchange. And by starting in January of this year, there were shortages of fuel and cooking gas and milk and uh, other food items and medicines. There were long lines to get gasoline. Uh, There were electricity blackouts, eight, 10 hours a day all over uh, over Colombo and other parts of the country. Um, It's been a painful and, and uh, a painful and, and humanly debilitating crisis. People are really suffering, um, including, you know, their stories of you know, mothers committing suicide with their children because they couldn't feed the children. I mean, it's just heartbreaking stories of what's going on. But the point is that people who are protesting on the streets, the Aragalaya movement that managed to topple the president, they understood this, the link between misguided economic policies and these horrible outcomes that they're facing. 
And that's why they wanted to get rid of the president. Well, he f fled on a on a jet, did he not, to that's Singapore? Right. And right. do we know what he took aboard that jet? I mean, the country's run out of jet fuel, but somehow he managed, he managed to get a plane out of there. And do we know what he took with him? In terms uh, no, no, we don't know. I, I have no idea, but I don't think that's a that's a big part of the story. No, what the country is doing, and and to his credit, the the, the recently deposed president, he did turn around and in uh, February of this year decided to undertake a debt restructuring and approach the IMF. In fact, that's when he asked myself and two others to to advise them on this on this process. And so we have been trying to restore macroeconomic stability in the country by reversing some of those policies, some of those misguided policies, and negotiating with the creditors for a, uh, for a new level of debt. And that's still ongoing. Those negotiations are ongoing. We hope to reach some resolution in the next three months or so, which would then permit some more foreign exchange to come into the country, particularly from the IMF and the World Bank and the Asian Development Bank and so on. In the meantime, though, the, the, as you said in your introduction, the shortages continue because there's, there's a real lack of foreign exchange. There's been some emergency lending from India, uh, about $4 billion, and we expect another $1.5 billion. Uh, we also hope to get something from other friendly nations like Japan and maybe China as well to tide the country over until this IMF agreement is reached. But who are you negotiating with now that the president is in Singapore? See, the, the negotiations at the moment are were taking place at the technical level. So it's the central bank governor and the secretary of the treasury who, who have been undertaking the negotiations. Now, those are both, they're not political appointees. They are uh, technical appointees. So they continue in place. And they have been negotiating with the, the technical team at the IMF, the, the Asia Department and, and uh, of the IMF. So those negotiations can proceed with, with even if there, it isn't clear who's the president of the country or who's the prime minister of the country. Uh, where it becomes important is, say, three months from now, when we're ready to, to sign an agreement that has been negotiated by the, by the technical staff, then you need a president in place and you need a, a prime minister in place and a finance minister in place to sign the agreement. Now, I am hopeful that that this situation will be resolved in the next week or so. Uh, I think they're projecting July 20th to have an election for a, prime, uh, for a president, uh, election by the parliament. Um, and But the, the other reason I'm somewhat hope optimistic is that we have been in the last four or five months, we've been discussing this program, the, the reforms, with all of the opposition leaders. And by and large, they are supportive of, of these reforms. So assuming one of them will emerge as the leader, as the president of the country, I think there's a good chance that, that he or she will support the program, even though they weren't the ones negotiating it. And again, I'm speaking with Shantajot Dharavajan, who is a professor in the practice of development at Georgetown University's Edmund A. Walsh School of Foreign Service. He was previously the senior director for development economics and a former acting chief economist at the World 
bank group and he was uh, born in Sri Lanka which we are discussing since there's a uh, countries in a state of emergency the country of Sri Lanka owes more than 50 billion dollars to multilateral agencies foreign governments and commercial creditors and some of the creditors of course are China which is owed about 5 billion or maybe more it's not quite clear about how much is owed to China India, apparently $3.8 billion. Japan is owed $3.5 billion, according to the IMF, and another $1 billion is owned by other countries. So that doesn't account for the $50 billion. So what, do we know about who the debtors are? Oh, sure. Uh, about half the debt is owed to private creditors, basically bondholders. It's, it's in international sovereign bonds. So that's you know thousands of people. It could be you and me. Uh, 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 who 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 uh, own the bonds? But those are private uh, 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 creditors. Then the other half is the official creditors, of which, as you said, uh, China and Japan are the two largest, and then India is, is, is second largest, um, and then a few other small smaller ones. So some of these countries are Sri Lanka's geopolitical rivals, are they not? No, no, no. They, they are not Sri Lanka's political. Sri Lanka is too small to be a geopolitical player. I see. They, they are they are geopolitical rivals with each other. I see. Sometimes playing in the Sri Lankan playing field, I shall see. we say? So, I, I mean, in particular, China and India are geopolitical rivals in in Asia, uh, and uh, they they, uh, they often. Uh, like to have a, a foothold in Sri Lanka because it's strategically located. I see. So, there, but there have been reports in the past of a debt trap caused by China building a port, etc. What's the status on those? Yeah, that that I think that's uh, that's not as serious a problem now. I mean, Sri Lanka is in a in a debt crisis, but I don't think the China factor is as serious as it as it was. It is true that China lent Sri Lanka, I think, about a billion dollars at non-concessional rates, at commercial rates, to build a port in the south, uh, Hambantota, uh, which happened to be the then president's uh, birthplace, um, and uh, it turned out that this port was not commercially viable, and so the Sri Lankans realized they couldn't pay back the debt. Uh, but uh, so they they ha they made a deal with China where China would now have uh, equity. So China now has a lease on that port, as well as uh, about five thousand acres around the around the port um, to of of land. Uh, so there's no longer a debt. The, the Sri Lanka no, no longer owes uh, China any money uh, for the uh, for the port. But on the other hand, China actually owns the port, if you like, for, for 99 years. But China has joined with France as a co-chair of the Official Credit Committee for Zambia, which is another earlier sovereign debt defaulter in many ways caused by the COVID pandemic. Is that a model that could follow here with Sri Lanka? Oh, yes. No, I think, I think China will have to play a major role in the debt restructuring. Uh, and in, in fact, this is something I was just discussing with somebody else earlier this afternoon, uh, because we don't really have mechanisms to suit the, 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 the current modern world of, of, of debt, uh, because we used to have something called the Paris Club, uh, which, which handled the debt 
restructuring negotiations going back to the days of the debt crises of the Latin American debt crises onwards. Um, but but by the, as the term might indicate, the Paris Club tended to be the European uh, countries as well as the United States uh, and Japan. It didn't include China or India. So today, when you're, when you're like Sri Lanka, with, where the major creditors are China and India, um, the Paris Club is not suited to as a place to negotiate these uh, uh, these uh, these debt restructuring deals. So we need some mechanism that that is inclusive. And I think the Zambia case you mentioned, where China and France, France being a member of the traditional Paris Club, as co-chairs is one way of going going forward on that. But how are you going to reconcile the competing interests of China and India, geopolitical rivals, in dealing with the debt? I mean, the IMF says that Sri Lanka's debts are unsustainable. Well, so that's why they would both have an interest in seeing Sri Lanka have a sustainable debt. In that, in that sense, they would each have an interest in seeing Sri Lanka on a, on a more sustainable footing because they have quite a few investments in Sri Lanka. They don't want Sri Lanka to collapse, the Sri Lankan economy to, uh, to come to a grinding halt. Um, so that's one uh, principle. The, uh, the other principle in debt restructuring negotiations is this principle of intercreditor equity. That is, all the creditors should take the same hit, the same cut. Uh, uh, so that no one creditor is favored. Uh, now, th that does leave enough room for uh, variation in terms of how you take the cut. So some might take a, a, a reduction in the interest payments, some might take a reduction in the principal, and some might take an extension of the maturity of the loan, that is that you pay back over a longer period of time. And all of those are possible as long as the equivalent amount is the same for all of them. And so I think India and China have an interest in the principle of intercreditor equity, um, uh, and so we'll we'll co uh, collaborate uh, because they both want to see Sri Lanka succeed. But you were saying earlier, Shanta, that the uh, most of the debt is uh, from commercial lenders. So... Yeah, and and this principle applies to them too. So they also have to have to follow the principle of intercreditor equity. So we, we're negotiating with the uh, with the bondholders as well. They've, they've formed a collective group, the bondholders. Uh, and uh, so their, their negotiations, I think they're ongoing right now with that group. But who gets priority here? The sovereign debt nations or the commercial lenders? No, is, there a, is there a battle? No, that's the point. That's the point about intercreditor equity. Nobody gets priority. Everybody uh -huh. has to has to take the same same hit. I so we, 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 that's precisely to avoid that uh, uh, favoritism. And how, how is that working out? Uh, too soon to tell, but I, I think the, the principle seems to be uh, adhere, be, being adhered to. I mean, people haven't, nobody has come out and said, you know, we reject that principle of intercreditor equity. And I just, my informal conversations with, say, some of the bondholders, say that it sounds like they're willing to cooperate. But Shanta, when you were saying earlier that there are reports of women committing suicide along with their children, killing their own children because of the despair at, at no food and no future, uh, the, prob the, the, the needs are immediate, are they not? 
I mean, Absolutely. I mean, That's what, why what's happening in that regard? Is there, is there any international effort to, to get emergency aid to this country? That's where this, this uh, bridge financing, as we call it, from India, Japan, and China, if it's possible, is absolutely essential. Because that's what's going to give the, the, the foreign exchange that will en enable Sri Lanka to import these essential uh, imports like food and fuel and pharmaceuticals and, 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 and so on. Uh, I should add that the World Bank uh, has managed, you see, the World Bank can't give any new money to Sri Lanka at the moment because it's not creditworthy, because Sri Lanka is technically in default. But what they have done, and it's just turned out to be very useful, is to repurpose existing loans that had been committed to Sri Lanka but hadn't been dispersed. They've repurposed them for emergency assistance. So I think it's up to about $300 million have been provided, providing cash transfers to the poor and some school feeding programs uh, and some emergency medical assistance is going, uh, is going right now. And just in closing, is there any, you know, given the nature of the crisis, is there stability? Is the, is the military and the police, is there cohesion? You've seen pictures of looting and burning going on and attacking the president's residence, etc. Yeah, the, well, it, it seems to have uh, calmed down. That, 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 just to be very clear, as far as I can tell, the protesters, by and large, were peaceful. There was, mm. they, 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 and, and, you know, even they, they went into the president's residence, they took over the president's residence, and they cooked food for themselves, and they watched TV and worked out in the gym and whatever. And notice that they cleaned up after themselves as soon as they left. They made sure that they left the place as clean as possible. Uh, that's the kind of attitude they're having uh, uh, in, in, in all, uh, all along the way. I mean, there, there may have been some fringe elements that the ones who set fire to the, to the prime minister's residence and, and so on that, are, that, are, that was very dangerous. Uh, but by and large, I, I feel like the, the protesters, the Aragalaya movement, has been uh, extremely responsible and um, uh, and peaceful and and uh, m maintaining the, the what you would expect in terms of a, uh, uh, exercising their right of uh, free speech. Uh, so the only thing that's currently the instability or uncertainty is who who is actually the president and who is the the prime minister. Now the, the last I heard and this news comes every 15 minutes or so. Uh, so the president's official resignation letter has been received. And so the president has officially resigned from his post. Uh, the prime minister, according to the constitution, then becomes the acting president. And there was a report that the prime minister has nominated the leader of the opposition, Sajid Premadasa, to be the prime minister. Uh, now that he's no longer the prime minister, since he's acting president, and this arrangement will last until June, to July twentieth, which is next week, mm. uh, at which point Parliament will elect the interim president or the caretaker president. So that's also in the constitution, and that president will serve until they call an election. Well, Shanta Deravajan, I thank you so much for giving us uh, such an expert appraisal of what's happening in this sad situation. Well, thank you for giving me the chance. It was nice to meet you. 
And again, I've been speaking with Shanta Deravajan, who's a professor in the practice of development at Georgetown University's Edmund A. Walsh School of Foreign Service. He was previously the Senior Director for Development Economics and a former Acting Chief Economist of the World Bank Group, and he was born in Sri Lanka. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters. I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon and assistant producer Asher Price. If you missed any of today's program and would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org, where we include extended interviews searchable by topic and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles, and books discussed on the program. Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcast, and we also encourage your ratings and reviews on these platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Masters Media, and please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family, and colleagues. And to help us sustain this program into the future and assure it remains free to all, please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org donate or to publictruthmedia.org where you will find our non-profit Public Truth Media Foundation where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. And I'll be back on Sunday with another background briefing. Bye for now.